But today we're looking at the parable of the sower. In Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to go ahead and read it. And then we're going to back up a bit and give it some background. As we often do with these kinds of things, you kind of need to know what's happening around it to really understand what's happening when Jesus says this. So, But we're going to read the parable of the sower, uh, Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to read verses 1 through 23. If you'd like to turn there, if you'd like to follow along. Um, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Great crowds assembled around him, so that he went into a boat and sat there. And the whole assembly stood there on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow. While he sowed, some seeds fell beside the path, and the birds came and devoured them. But other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, because they did not have deep soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and because they did not take root, they withered away. Some seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. But other seeds fell into good ground and produced grain, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times as much. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, It is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For to him who was will more be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Therefore, I speak to them in parables. Because they look, but do not see, and they listen, but they do not hear, neither do they understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, saying, which says, By hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, their ears have become hard of hearing, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear, and have not heard them. Therefore, listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one who received seed beside the path. But he who received the seed on rocky ground is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. <coughs> Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, eventually he falls away. He also who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit, some produce a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in prayer, um, asking that you would open your word to us, make it clear to us. Impress it upon us, the words that you want us to know, to hear, open our eyes and our ears, help us to hear and see. And as we hear this, Father, I pray that you would just impress it in us that we might change, that we might be good soil, and that your word would grow deep inside of us and, and shape who we are, and we might produce fruit that would please you. 
We're grateful for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, to get a picture of what's happening here, to shine some light on what's going on, we really want to back up a bit, back to the beginning of chapter 12, to you know, kind of understand what Jesus is getting at in this parable. And part of what's happening here is that Jesus is teaching a series of parables, but there are some significant events that lead up to this parable. And one of those, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 12, is when Jesus and his disciples, they're wandering along on the Sabbath day. They're wandering, you know, maybe through a grain field, by a grain field, I don't know exactly. But they're picking heads of grain to eat. They're picking heads of grain as they walk past this field to eat, just kind of randomly, I suppose. And I, I grew up on a, uh, a farm as a kid. I lived there until I, I moved away, old, was old enough to move away. And I remember my grandfather showing me this when I was a, a young boy in a field of, of barley, I think it was. And he said, hey, you can eat these heads of grain. And he would pluck them and rub them between his hands and, and get rid of the, the chaff, and then he would eat the heads of grain. And I don't know if you've ever tried to do that, but that's not an easy thing to do. You, you would not gain weight living on those. That would be because they're hard to chew, but they are edible. And it wouldn't be something I, I would choose if I had other choices, but you can do that. And anyway, that's what the disciples are doing. They're picking these heads of grain, you know, rubbing between their hands and eating the individual grains. And some Pharisees see them doing this, the religious leaders of the day. And they, they go to Jesus and they say, hey, look at what your disciples are doing. They're doing something that isn't lawful on the Sabbath day. So this is the Sabbath day. This is the day that's set aside for rest and worship. And they say, what they're doing isn't lawful. And Jesus says to them, you've read when David went into the temple and he ate the ritual bread or the show bread that was that was reserved for the priests. It was something only the priests were supposed to eat. Or he says, have you not read how the priests work in the temple on the Sabbath? And they don't profane the Sabbath when they do. And they were raising what they felt were genuine concerns with Jesus. They're saying they're breaking the law, they're breaking the rules, they shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus addresses those concerns. But as usual, Pharisees never like the answer they're given, unless it's the one they're looking for. And he also says to them, in this place, there's one who's greater than the temple. And if you knew what this meant, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And one thing I want to point out, as we read these, you know, it's always easy to pick on the Pharisees, but as Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, remember he's doing so in love. He cares for them just as much as he does anyone else. And when he answers the Pharisees and he says like things like, haven't you read, you know, in our culture, in our day, the way we understand that, it almost sounds like he's being snarky or obstinate or something like that. But I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think everything Jesus says is pure and honest, and he doesn't necessarily say things just to upset people although the Pharisees are often upset by what he says. It's kind of like he's saying, hey, you guys have read this, right? You understand this, you know, you're, but, you're, but you're missing something. You've misunderstood something. You've, you've taken a wrong turn somewhere. There's something you're missing in what God has said. And he's of course, he's talking about the Old Testament as well, something else we should remember. 
And then Jesus leaves this interaction with the Pharisees, and he goes on to the next one. He walks into the synagogue, kind of like, you know, what would be like us walking into a church in a way. And there was a man there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they're asking this not because they're looking for an answer. They want to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing. And then Jesus uses another metaphor. And he says to the Pharisees, he said, if you had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you pull it out? You know, if one of your livestock, because everybody had livestock, very agrarian culture, if one of your livestock, one of your sheep fell into a pit on the Sabbath day, wouldn't you go and pull it out? Of course you would. Anyone would, is the point. And then he says, how much more would you do that same thing for another person, for a human being, for a fellow human being who God loves? And then he says, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, which I think is a really cool answer because he doesn't limit it to just healing this man. He says, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he heals the guy. And now the Pharisees, they see him heal this man. They get to experience this supernatural event where Jesus heals this man with a withered hand. But the Bible says they went out and talked about how they might kill him after seeing this. It seems like such a strange reaction to seeing someone healed. And then they go out, they, they, they conspire together how they're going to kill Jesus. So they want to kill Jesus simply because he said it was okay to pick heads of grain and heal people on the Sabbath. And it gets better. Jesus leaves the synagogue and he heals some more people. And then down in verse 22 of chapter 12, there was a man who was possessed with a demon. And he's brought to Jesus and he was blind and he couldn't speak. He was, um, yeah, mute and blind. And Jesus heals him. And then he can talk and he can see. And everybody's amazed, as you would be. If you saw something like that, it'd be, wow, look what just happened. And again, except the Pharisees. Except the Pharisees. They hear about what Jesus did, and you know what they say? This is what they say. They say, this man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. They're accusing Jesus of being used by Satan, which is ironic. And again, Jesus says, he generally, I believe really when he talks to them, he's generally trying to teach them, and he says... What you guys are saying, it's irrational. It's not true. It can't be true logically or rationally what you're saying. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. That can't work. Now remember, we're working towards the parable of the sower. And these events lead up to it. Obviously, Jesus is trying to explain to the Pharisees that they've missed something. They've missed the point. They've taken a wrong turn somewhere. They've turned this into something it shouldn't be. He says, you guys, you guys don't understand God's intention in his word. It hasn't taken root. It hasn't grown in you. You, we, I tend to pick on the Pharisees a little bit. When we read God's word, we're like, oh, look at these you know, self-righteous you know." Um, guys who uh, don't understand God's word and they're legalistic. Look how bad and legalistic they are. But I think that what you, we, I need to understand is that we all have a Pharisee living in us that's just, just waiting to come out. 
waiting to pop out his head or her head, just waiting to happen. We have a Pharisee living in us, and pride will feed that, or whatever feeds that, and it just, it's, it's ready to come out. So how is it, because we don't want that to happen, so how is it that people are supposed to know God's word, which the Pharisees claim to, which all of us as, as Christians, contemporary Christians, if you're a Christian, we should claim to know God's word. We should know God's word. So how is it that people who are supposed to be the, the people who know God's word so well, and even the, the religious leaders of the day, how is it that they miss the point by so much as to what Jesus is talking about, as to God's intention in his word? And you hear his concern in the way he talks to the Pharisees. He says, haven't you, haven't you guys read about David eating the showbread in the temple. He says, you guys know this. I, you know, what's going on here? Remember when Nicodemus came to talk to Jesus in John chapter 3 in the middle of the night, and he, Jesus talks to him about being born again, and they have this conversation about, you know, Jesus is the Savior, and God sent his son because he loved the world, and that, you know, whoever trusts him won't perish but have eternal life. And as they're having this conversation, Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, you're a teacher in Israel. How is it that you don't know this stuff? You know, where did you turn? Where did you make a wrong turn? Where did you go wrong? What did you got, get caught up in that keeps you from understanding what I'm talking about, what God is talking about? How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, we're going to take a few minutes and kind of explore a way that that can potentially happen. Maybe it does happen that way. How do things get to that point where someone who is should be, very knowledgeable in God's word, completely misses it. They read it, but they don't know it. They hear it, but it doesn't change them. They don't really understand it. How do things get to that point where people who are supposed to understand God's word completely miss it? And it happens a lot. And none of us are immune to missing the point of God's word. None of us are immune to that. We can become so caught up and distracted in our own idols and extra-biblical things, traditions, thoughts, beliefs, actions, any number of things, to the point that the word of God no longer grows in us. How does that happen? Well, in Mark chapter 7, I think, I think we can find an answer there. Again, it's the Pharisees and the disciples and Jesus in this interaction in Mark chapter 7 towards the beginning of the chapter there. And the disciples, they were eating, but they weren't washing their hands. Which, you know, we might think, well, that's kind of gross. Why weren't they washing their hands? We always wash our hands before we eat. But let's read Mark chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, where the Pharisees address their genuine concerns with Jesus. This is what it says, Mark 7, 3 through 5. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they purify themselves. And there are many other traditions which they observe, the washing of cups and pots and vessels of bronze. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with hands defiled? So we're kind of talking about ceremonial washing here, well, and also hygienic. But the key phrase here is the tradition of the elders. What do they say? The tradition of the elders. Notice they say it's not called the law, but the tradition of the elders. Now, what exactly are, is, is, are the Pharisees talking about when they say the tradition of the elders? Here's how I see this happening. 
as I look back and read and put two and two together. In the Old Testament, okay, there are purification laws and or purification rites, and the priests working in the temple had to do that. There was certain ceremony that they followed washing to purify themselves before they worked in the temple. God says, when you come here to conduct the religious ceremonies, there are certain things I want you to do. And one of those is, you know, I want you to wash up first. There's, there's ceremonial washing that they do. Now, what happens is somewhere, at some point, some well-meaning person, remember that's for the priest, some well-meaning person says, you know, the priests are all supposed to wash up before they go in the temple. I think it'd be a good idea if we all washed up before we went in the temple. I think that'd be a good idea. And then someone else somewhere along the way says, okay, well, yeah, you know, just to be safe, let's all do that. But that's not what God said, is it? He says, I want the priest to do it. But somebody says, you know, that's a good idea. We should all do that. And then over time, those things compound themselves, you know, well-meaning, well-intentioned in the beginning. Over time, those things compound themselves, and it starts with the idea of just to be safe. Just to be safe. It's probably a good idea. We should do that. And we still want to do that today. And after a while, when we do those kinds of things, it becomes the right thing to do. And then it becomes something you must do, or you're, or you're not doing things right, or you're doing something wrong. And then, there are those who come along, and they appoint themselves to make sure everyone is doing this right. And that's where Pharisees come from. That's where Pharisees come from. And you can see they've, they've added things to God's word, and then over time, those traditions or whatever they might be become a means of righteousness, which leads to legalism from things that aren't even from God's Word. And that creates the Pharisees who go around and police and make sure everybody's doing those things. And it only takes about a generation before a well-intentioned idea becomes a tradition that then becomes a pseudo-law. And there's always a percentage of us who are struggling with that. We probably all have something in our lives, some area where we're a bit pharisaical with it. And we're like, oh, you know, you got to do this to be right with God. And we all struggle with that to some degree. And, it, it, you know, this, it's hard to give specific examples about this without stepping on people's toes. So I'm just going to be a little bit silly with it. Um, and people say you shouldn't worry about stepping on people's toes. What they mean is, is you shouldn't worry about stepping on other people's toes, but don't step on mine. But there, are there any cat lovers here? Cat lovers, a few cat lovers. We all know cats are pagan, right? No, I'm just kidding, guys. I'm just kidding. I like, I like cats, too. I'm, I'm more of a dog person, but I like cats. Um, I can tell, well, no, I'm not going to chase a rabbit. But I like cats, too. But Egyptians, for instance, elevated cats to the status of gods in their religion. And in fact, the goddess Bastet, I think was her name, was depicted as having a head of a cat. And we've all seen that hieroglyph with the, the head of the cat. And so if I like cats, does that mean I'm worshiping a pagan god? Well, no, of course it doesn't mean that. But just to be safe, maybe I shouldn't own a cat. Just to be, just to be safe. Just to be safe. Maybe no Christians should own cats. You see how that can kind of turn into a weird thing? Again, it's a silly, ridiculous example. Or how about days of the week? Like Friday, 
is the, uh, named after the Norse goddess of love, Freya. Friday, Freya, Norse goddess of love. Mondays, we all know Mondays are pagan, right? Uh, that Monday's named after uh, Monendag, day of the moon goddess. Turns out, the name for pretty much every day of the week is some, from some pagan tradition in Europe, you know, from centuries ago. Maybe we should come up with different names of days for the week, you know, just to be safe, because we don't want to be associated with paganism. You know, just to be safe. Nike is a good example. Nike was a goddess of victory in ancient Egypt. Um, maybe we shouldn't wear Nike shoes, you know, just to be safe. Um, I'm not wearing Nikes. I'm wearing Vans, so I'm safe. Um, I don't want anybody to think I'm associated with paganism. But those are just silly examples, okay? Silly examples. Hopefully no one takes things to that kind of weird extreme, but it does happen. It does happen. Mercury cars, well, I guess Mercury's not a brand here, but over time, those kinds of things that are kind of silly and we start out, well, maybe we should do this just to be safe. They become rules that Pharisee in us says, we need to do that to follow God. We need to do that to be right with God. We need other people to do that to be right with God. But that's a lie. It's untrue. And as Christians, we should be the most bold and free people in the world because Jesus said it is finished. And when we put our faith in him, those, are, those kinds of things are completely meaningless when we understand the gospel, when we truly get our head around the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for us for all sin, and we trust him. We know we're secure in him. And those kinds of things can affect us. They can affect us. They can't do anything to us. And one of the things that churches have wrestled with, that, you know, like when I was in seminary and in the culture in that place and time that I've seen a lot of in my past travels, and no doubt, you know, there's still, still a problem in places, but, and that's what people wear to church, how they dress when they go to church. And, you know, if you've been in church for a while, you know, if you grew up in church and you, maybe you're a little older, you, you've probably seen this and you've probably seen the kind of cultural struggles that churches have gone through in regards, you know, to what people wear to church. Um, there was a time when there was a very distinct dress code in the churches that, you know, I was part of. That was a suit and tie kind of dress code. Um, ladies wore long dresses, which, you know, I had no, no doubt that at some point someone said, you know, this is a good idea. I'm going to wear this because I'm going to worship and I want to look my best. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that. There really is not. But then over time, that gradually transformed into, well, if you're going to come to church, this is how you should dress if you want to be acceptable. If you want to be accepted by us, if you want to be accepted by God, you better, you better dress up. But remember, that all started with, well, this is a good idea. We should do this, you know, just to be safe, just to be safe. You know, but Pharisees, you know, we kind of pick on the Pharisees on the conservative side of things out, out there too, but, but Pharisees can be on the other side of the, the pendulum swing as well and be, be too liberal and too loose with things, you know, saying, well, you have to dress a certain way and making issue of it is no different than saying you shouldn't dress like that and making an issue of it. In all those things that I mentioned, and a thousand others, you know, if you feel that wearing Nike shoes, Nike, Nike, however you pronounce it, is a bad thing because it makes you feel like you're associating yourself with, with the religion of, of ancient Greece, you know what? Then don't wear Nikes. 
Okay? Don't wear Nikes. If it makes you feel like that, it's immature, but that's okay. Everyone needs room to grow. Everyone needs room to grow. It only becomes an issue when it becomes legalism. It makes me right with God, or other people aren't right with God because they're not doing it. It only becomes an issue when it's seen as a means of being right with God and we begin to impose it on others. And that's a, a source of division and problems that, you know, they're never going to go away completely. But something we really need to think about. If you think that God loves you more because you don't wear Nikes, for instance, that's an issue. That's a problem. All that accomplishes is division. Now, if you want to dress up for church, do that. I'll support you in that. That's wonderful. If you want to wear thongs to church, wear thongs to church. Now, as a caveat, since we've got an online campus, we could have people listening all over the world. Wearing thongs to church in Australia means something entirely different than it does in Texas. Okay? So just, just see there, there, there are some, definitely some cultural considerations we need to think about. Those are two completely different things geographically. So it's good to consider how we make others feel by how we dress. We need to think about that. But all that's just kind of silly and fun. But when Jesus talks to the Pharisees, it's recorded for us to hear. Okay, God's word is recorded for us to hear. And as he's addressing these issues in the Pharisees, we should be saying, wow, look how wrong those guys are. We should be listening to what Jesus says and say, okay, now how does this apply to me? What does this mean for me? How does this affect me? Because it's recorded, recorded for us to hear. And he's saying to the Pharisees, you've missed the point, And you turned this into something it was never meant to be. And it often starts with the idea of, hey, I think this is a good idea. Let's do this just to be safe. And then it becomes tradition. That's, that becomes law. But it's not God's law. And remember how we read about the Pharisees wanting to kill Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him. And they also said he was working for Satan. They said he was working for Satan. And, you know, and I know throughout ministry, I've had people say this to me multiple times. Um, I, I had a guy call me up on the phone one day and say, he, was, he called me a satanic piece of and used a bunch of expletives, and I was like, is that how Christians talk? But when that happens, I met somebody even recently told my wife she's a tool of Satan, but when that happens, I remember this passage. You know, and if that happens to you, remember this passage. And remember they said the exact same things to Jesus. So why should I expect any less? Why should I expect any less? So what is it that brings someone to that level of animosity? The Pharisees want to kill Jesus because he's allowing his disciples to do things that they don't like. And I believe that goes along with something we've talked about before, at least to a large degree, and that's having their comfortable narrative challenged. That's what Jesus did to the Pharisees. He didn't set out to make them angry it's just what he taught and what he did challenged their comfort zone. He was wise, he was harmless, but his words challenged them. He didn't do it out of spite or to be obstinate. I don't think he was snarky. He wanted them to know and believe and be changed by his word, just like he wants us to know and believe and be changed by his word. Now, if you are genuinely just trying to share what Jesus says and you're upsetting that apple cart on 
both sides of the aisle, so to speak. You're probably right where you should be. And the Pharisees and the Herodians, for instance, they both hated Jesus, but they were completely different. One supported Jewish people. The other one supported the Roman government. The only thing they had in common was a common hatred for Jesus. So as we turn over to chapter 13, where we started today, Jesus has so many people following him that he has to get in a boat. They push him out a little ways from shore. So he's got kind of a, he can see everybody and he can speak to everybody. Bit of a natural amphitheater there. Sound carries very well across the water. But he goes out so he can speak to this crowd. And he sits down in the boat. That was a normal thing in that culture for teachers to do. They would sit down and teach. And Jesus tells a story about someone scattering seed, the parable of the sower. And all of this has been leading up to this. I remember my granddad, when I was a kid, would plant corn with a planter. In the, in the, and he had a tractor and a mechanical planter. And I used to sit on the tractor. And I was fascinated with this planter because it had a hopper in it. And it would go down through the field, and it had a blade on the front that would turn over a bit of a furrow, and then it would drop seed, and then there was another blade come along behind it and cover it up just that quick. And, you know, you plant acres and acres and acres with it. And I loved watching, riding on the tractor and watching this thing work. But in this parable, that's not how things work, okay? They didn't have mechanical planters. They didn't have tractors or any of that stuff. And so what the sower would do is he would go out and he would scatter the seed by hand. Kind of like, I don't know if you've ever spread grass seed in your yard over bald patches. I've done that a few times. Similar thing. But he would walk along and he would scatter the seed. And as Jesus says in this parable, the seed just kind of lands where it does. It lands where he ends up throwing it. And, but the kind of soil it lands on makes all the difference in the yield that the seed does or does not produce. You see, the seed is consistent. But the soil types are very, very different. And Jesus explains each kinds of soil in the passage we read. And the first one he talks about along the path, well, this isn't really soil at all. This would be very tramped, hard. It's the path. This might be the path that the sower would walk on while he was scattering seed or she was scattering seed. Nothing's going to grow there. Nothing's going to grow there. The soil's too hard. The bird's carried away. But each soil represents a different kind of person, or maybe what God's Word does in that person. And who do you think Jesus is talking about when he says some of the seed fell on the path? It didn't grow, it didn't do anything, the birds ate it, carried it off. Maybe the Pharisees, maybe the Pharisees. But regardless of that, what does he want you and I to hear? What does he want us to learn from it? In this case, the word is presented, but it's not absorbed. It doesn't grow. It doesn't put down roots. It doesn't produce food, fruit. Nothing happens with it. It doesn't even get a chance to take root, partly because they've already got to figure it figured out. As they hear Jesus' words, they don't need it. They already know what they're talking about. They don't need to be taught anything. They already know better than Jesus does. His words are meaningless to them. So that seed is pretty much wasted. They have traditions and laws that make them right and give them control, and they certainly don't want to be challenged. And we don't want to be that type of soil. That's not what we want to be. We don't want to be the path. But unfortunately, you know, we, we can end up there. It can certainly happen. Then there's the rocky soil. The seed kind of grows a bit, 
it grows a little bit, but the soil's too shallow for any you know, real root system to grow. So the sun destroys the small growth that does happen. And Jesus says this is someone who's excited to receive the word, at least initially. They're excited initially, but no amount of enthusiasm guarantees longevity. And when Jesus was explaining this parable, he said that the reason this person only endures for a little while is because they find being a Christian difficult. They find being it hard. And when they experience tribulation or persecution because of the word, they fall away. Now notice it's, it's, it's because of the word. And that really could kind of be two things. One is that they share the word with the world. The world reacts poorly. It could also be when the word challenges them. When they hear it, it presses against them. They say, no, I don't think that's going to happen. I really don't want that in my life. And the fruit goes away. What they did have dries up. And when we talk about persecution, we often think of it coming from the world. But remember, religious people killed Jesus and stoned Paul. And when their comfortable narrative was challenging, that's what they did. So we want to be careful with that. And then there's also the thorny soil. In this case, the word gets choked out by riches and the deceitfulness of the world. Riches and deceitfulness of the world. And this is someone who falls away because they, they don't get what they want. Okay, they don't get what they want. They also conflate being a Christian with things like legalism and health and wealth and nationalism and all these different things that have you know, no part in the gospel. No part in the gospel. But then there's the good soil. The last soil Jesus talks about. The good soil. The seed is received. The word takes root and grows strong roots and produces fruit. This person hears the word and understands it. Some produce 100 or 60 or 30. 30 times what was sown, Jesus says. And he also says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. There are some who grow deep roots and they produce fruit. There's also those who grow roots but produce no fruit. And Jesus goes on to address that in the wheat and the tares. But we can have some wrong beliefs, we can be immature, we can sin, we can mess up, we can do all these different kinds of things. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're bad soil. It doesn't necessarily mean you're bad soil. Somebody could have what looks to be a model Christian life, but they might be bad soil. They might be the path. What determines what type of soil we are is what God's Word does in us. Does it grow? Does it take root? Do we produce fruit? So let's challenge ourselves today with this thought. Look in the mirror and say, what type of soil am I? You can even put a, like a little post-it note on your mirror at home. What type of soil am I? Do I look to the Word hoping to grow? You know, and, and be frank with yourself. And that's, that's not an easy thing. It's not easy to grow. It's hard. Change is difficult. You know, if, you, if you grow flowers or plants or anything like that, if you're any kind of a horticulturist, it takes a lot to grow a healthy plant that produces good fruit. There's a lot of work that goes into that. It's not an easy thing to do. And when God's perfect word comes up against our imperfect nature, our sinful nature, it's not comfortable. It's not easy to be good soil. So let's ask ourselves this week, what type of soil am I? How do I receive God's word? Do I hear it? Does it take root in me? Does it grow in me? Does it change me? Do I produce fruit from it? I'm going to ask you to stand with me for a moment. We're going to have a word of prayer. 
I'm going to pray for us collectively that God would, would show us these things and speak to us in these things and help us become good soil that, so that his word does affect us in the way he wants it to. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer. We're thankful for your love, your mercy, and your grace. And as we think on these things, in the peril of the sower, and what you said, I pray that we would closely examine ourselves, reflect in our own lives, and say, Lord, am I, where am I? Am I thorny soil, rocky soil, the path? Is, is God, does, your, does your word just kind of bounce off of me because maybe I already think I've got it figured out? Do I need to be good soil? Do I need to work on that? Do you need to, to till me? To turn me upside down? To, 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 yeah, plow the soil that needs plowed. Father, I pray that you would do that for each of us, even though it's not easy or comfortable. I pray that your word would just take root in our lives, that it would grow, and that we would produce fruit that is pleasing to you. We're thankful for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.